everybody welcome to voices from the front lines your national movement building show this is eric mann your host along with your co-host channing martinez who's in studio and today we have a really great show we have two because we call it voices from the front lines so one is we have noel hanrahan who has been both the head of prison radio and just an amazing uh, advocate for all political prisoners in the United States and has been a close ally and friend of Mumia Abu-Jamal since his uh, unbearable incarceration and false imprisonment. And his major breakthroughs in the case, which uh, Noel is going to explain to us. And with, as always, on Voices from the Frontlines, your responsibility and obligation to act, not simply to know about it. And then also, uh, we have Hesenia Chavez from the United Teachers of Los Angeles. A lot of you know that there may be a teacher strike either this Wednesday or next Monday. We're going to get Hesenia to explain it to us better. Uh, I think you've heard a lot of the point of view from the Board of Education and the Superintendent Butner. But we really want the teachers of Los Angeles, who are the people who actually are the teachers, to talk about why they would consider going out on strike and what are the issues that they're facing and, yes, what's the support they would want uh, for their cause, which is a just cause. So we're going to go into both of those. It's called Voices from the Frontlines, and there are two tremendous voices from the Frontlines. And we'll start with Noel Hanrahan. Noel, how are you doing? I'm doing really good. Thank you for having me on. Well, Noel, um, I was going to ask you, uh, I have in front of you, dear Eric, Mumia won a major round. Do you have in front of you, because I'd rather hear your voice than mine for a while, but it's it's beautifully written, and I think it can it so effectively contains some of the arguments. Do you want to read a little bit from it, or just do you want to tell us in your own, since you wrote it anyway, <laughs> why don't you tell us what is going on we, we know basically it says that for the first time in 37 years, a Philadelphia court has granted Mumia Abu-Jamal relief. Judge Leon Tucker of the Philadelphia Court of Common Pleas has thrown out the Pennsylvania Supreme Court's repeated denials of Mumia's appeals, five appeals over 27 years. Why don't you take it from there? So Leon Tucker is a Republican black judge in Philadelphia at the lowest court level, the Common Pleas Court. That's where the record of Mumia's original trial was made. That's where this unbelievable level of suppression of evidence and racism happened in 1982. So the fact that this court in Philadelphia, ground zero for trying to keep him, first of all, trying to kill him for 30 years and now trying to keep him life in prison, this is where it's all happening. 
And so it's an amazing victory. It's the first time ever that Mumia Abu-Jamal has gotten a ruling in a Philadelphia courtroom that is going to dramatically affect his criminal conviction. Mm -hmm. So this has been 37 years of litigation, of trying to get relief. It's a pretty major break. And it came in part because the U.S. Supreme Court, in another death penalty case in Pennsylvania, admonished the Pennsylvania Supreme Court justice, the chief justice at the time, Ronald Castile, who was also a district attorney in Philadelphia, for hearing his own cases. When he was district attorney, he campaigned on sending people to death row. He campaigned on the rush to punishment. Well, as a Pennsylvania Supreme Court jurist, at the end of the state court appeals, he did things that the U.S. Supreme Court chastised him for. He sat on his own appeals where he had clear bias in these cases, and he was rubber stamping his own work. He did things like in Mumia Abu-Jamal's case. Mumia had Albert F. Sabo as his trial judge, um, who told a court clerk and another judge in chambers, I'm going to help the prosecution fry the end guy. And so this is the kind of courtroom that Mumia experienced when he was originally convicted of capital murder. Castile, as a Supreme Court justice, approved Sable coming out of retirement every 30 days just so he could sit on Mumia's appeal. So it is a confirmation of bias, like confirmation of the original trial court's bias. Um, These guys are paid, literally paid, both of them, by the Fraternal Order of Police. And the victim in this case was a police officer. So when they campaign for judgeship, you run in Pennsylvania for local post-conviction relief um, judges, the Common Police Court, and you run a campaign with paid constituents paying you, and Fraternal Order of Police are always running their candidates, and these guys accepted money from them. So this is a situation that we're in where Mumia has just had reinstated all of his appeals. This is 15 years of appeals. This is wipes out his federal habeas. It oh. means that Mumia goes back to original evidence. So Sabo came out of retirement and con- denied every single defense motion in 1995. We're talking Mumia's first uh, post-release conviction act. So all the new evidence that came out. So if you had seen... The movie, Long Distance Revolutionary. If you have read a book or two about Mumia's case, if you've heard on the radio, new photos, eyewitness recantation, um, bullets don't match. You know, if you've heard a hundred pieces of evidence, well, Sabo threw all that out. And when the local courts were ruling on Sabo's rulings, one of them said, Sabo's bias didn't matter as long as his rulings were appropriate. And so this is what the ruling now, because the U.S. Supreme Court said in the case Williams, that bias does matter. A fair trial is fundamental to due process. And Philadelphia is just notorious for constructing a judicial system that is an assembly line for people of color and poor people. It's literally an assembly line to prison here. As and is. everything and so, is about so efficiency. Several, so several things, Noel, because in that, it's an assembly line to prison in every single city and state in the United States as well. What Two questions. Why do you think that the judge uh, 
Tucker made the decision, and then let's talk about right away District Attorney Larry Krasner. He has 30 days to appeal. Just one yeah. one question of clarification. Um, you said a federal habeas. Do you, can you? I don't understand what that is actually. So there's there's your direct appeals and there your your state court appeals, and you have to exhaust those before you can file a federal habeas, which is a federal review of state state court decisions. Uh, and he had a 279 page federal habeas decision that overturned a sentence of death and gave him life, but also, or overturned a sentence of death, but also confirmed his original trial, right. like put in stone, cemented his, his the record created by Sabo. So that record has been hanging Mumia like an albatross around his neck for oh, okay. 37 years. So because the state court findings now have all been overturned right. and called into question, that means that he has access to appeals. Like Mumia is 64 years old, so we're 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 not satisfied with 10 more years of appeals, that's and right. he's innocent. That's, that's right. So let's be clear that uh, this long drawn out process where we have to fight for every inch for an innocent person. No, they just have to let him go because there was immense police brutality, police misconduct, prosecutorial misconduct, and judicial bias. So. And also, so, I mean, so, so, so the important thing is that because the record, as you said, in return for overturning his death sentence, they essentially said, but we cannot touch the original record. So this is now saying you can. Is this going to mean the possibility of a, quote, what, what are the judicial options, a new trial, an overturning it and a new trial? What would be the remedy, the ideal remedy that he could receive if they— uh, do not either, either if district attorney appeals it or if the appeal is denied, what would then be the next step? But but I, I'm going to go back on my own question. Tell us about Larry Krasner in the 30 days. How many days have passed? What do you know about the efforts to over to appeal this? Larry Krasner told the widow of the fallen officer, Maureen Faulkner, that he would tell her in a couple of days whether he would appeal or not. She has like a direct chain of course. contact with him. And that's been now 10 days. He has 30 days by court time to file it. So the end of January is when he would need to file it. The decision came out on December 27th. Just to say, look, it's actually true that the system responds when people demand justice. And when there are enough pressure points engaged whether it's trade unionism, whether it's church work, whether it's mobilizations in the streets, whether whatever the pressure point that this political system, this capitalist system is vulnerable at, and it has vulnerabilities, when the people get to those pressure points and when the people raise the level of the request for justice and the demand for justice and the insistence on justice, the system caves. So they can do whatever they want, whenever they want. It'll be a pressure valve release to give Mumia justice. It will not be because the system works. The system only responds to demands. Like power no, we, we totally agree. To and, and the question so, is, what is the pressure point on Krasner right now? What, what are you asking people to do to put pressure on Krasner? And Krasner is a Stanford-trained lawyer who defends people of color 
had never served as a prosecutor, was elected because people wanted change, because they had lived under the boot of Rizzo for too long, the legacy of Rizzo, because they had lived with the guys in blue running roughshod over every bodega. I mean, we lived in Ground Zero Philadelphia with the Fraternal Order of Police um, with zero accountability. That's why Krasner was elected. Now, Mumia Abu-Jamal is the third rail in Philly. He is the most politicized, publicized case. He's the person who always stood up to the police. He was targeted to be imprisoned because he wouldn't shut up, because he's a journalist advocating for his people. So, yes, he is going to be, you know, maybe Russell Maroon Schultz is somebody who might even be harder right. you know, to get right. out. But he's going to get he's going to be pretty close to being the hardest guy to pop. Um, and also the system has to go like the way in which so many of our family and friends and people that we love have been sent away to prisons that are far from Philly. Very right. far. Right. I talked to a guy today in Forestville. It's like eight hours away. He's innocent. Thirty seven years. innocent. So the pressure, the pressure. Krasner has the capacity to know what's right. He understands that the system, the judges, the prosecutors, former, and now he's trying to get rid of a bunch of them that are corrupt, and the police as a system of enforcement of this reality, um, he understands what that is. So, yes, he could make the right decision. Will he make the right decision? How much of a politician is he? Has he become a politician? How personally endangered does he feel? That's a possibility to hear. That's exactly right. I mean, you know, the police here make it in clear in no uncertain terms that they are willing. Like, I had a guy who made comments on a website about, he lived in Jersey, made a comments on websites about, I don't think you should be paying for Maureen's travel or something. You know, you should not be paying for the widow's travel or the FOP should not be involved in this case. The state police visited him, and they said, you have to understand, we cannot protect you. You are at immediate risk of being hurt or murdered. And they weren't talking, they were talking about the police. No, that's right. And as I said, you know, just to tell Noel that when Ken Gibson was elected as the first black mayor of Newark and uh, we had built this whole campaign against Dominic Spina, who was uh, a mafioso chief of police in Newark and part of the Italian true mob, on the first day that Gibson was elected, Spina walked in put his gun down on Gibson's desk and said, look, you can pass social welfare programs. I don't really care. But you see this gun. I have it and you don't. And I would urge you to stay away from the police. And in return, we will stay away from you. So that was the nature of the armed state. Uh, And Gibson stayed the heck away from the police, trust me, for his entire never said the P word again. Uh, so the question is that we have the chance to pressure District Attorney Larry Krasner, right, uh, who is at least somebody who has run as a reform. Let me ask you a couple questions. Are there any forces inside the Democratic Party establishment or the black establishment who are supporting Mumia's right to a new trial and participating in the pressure on District Attorney Krasner? It's interesting. I think that there are people in lawyer circles who are progressive or very progressive 
who want all of the people that might be affected by these rulings to benefit. So yeah, they're worried right. that if Mumia doesn't get the right ruling, right. all of their clients will suffer. So that's a very pretty big tradition here of zealous advocates who are willing to um, work for poor people, and they know that if Mumia suffers uh, injustice um, in terms of a judicial ruling, it'll affect everyone. So I think there's a bunch of them. I think the Democratic Party are at every level here, only willing to do what won't cost them anything and will only move their chips into the table when it serves them. And at some point, the people, sorry, but they're not going to do it unless we make them, are going to make the fact that they have to push their chips into the table and they have to take on some ugly realities that we live with every day. That is going to happen. Now, that's going to happen. And it's going to be painful for them, but they're not going to do it willingly because they're about protecting their, they're not about leading. They're not about doing the right thing. They're not about challenging um, jackboot authority that is out of control. They have their agenda. No, the only thing I'm saying, Noel, this is all good. The reason I'm saying these questions is because I know, I mean, I'm just trying to say, we know what the Democratic Party is. My question wasn't. What's wrong with it? You know, we know the Democratic Party is in bed with everything. We know most black Democrats are in the Democratic Party. There's a, you just said there was a DA who was trying to do something. My question is in the okay. specifics, either yes or no, is there something in the Philadelphia power structure? I understand this is the third rail. I mean, this is a man, a black man who was a black panther and a black revolutionary allegedly which was falsely accused of killing a police officer. Nobody wants to take this case in the, trust me, there's nobody I could, if you asked me the question in, in Los Angeles, my answer would be very specifically no, you know, okay. but not because we don't try. So is there anyone by name who has come forth, I'm just asking, is there anyone who's come forth prominently in any form, religion, uh, media, anywhere, to say, Please don't appeal, and this is an important civil rights case. Let it let let him have a chance for a new trial. No, because oh. there's no political upside for them at this point. Okay, they I get it. I get it. No, well, I get it. Taking. Okay, I get it. So let's move on. Okay, I totally understand. So now we're going to move on again. What, therefore, what do you want us to do? Recognize that this is the moment that everybody has to, whatever ripple of pressure you can create, and people underestimate every action. Every action has a reaction and a ripple. And you touch people that you don't know have connections and power, and together we have power. So what people can do is turn up the pressure and hold politicians or people in power or their community leaders, whether it's a church person or whatever, accountable. Like, this is something that we need um, eloquent national relief from, or we need every person who is in a position to have a podium to echo this. So if we're going to be, so if for our listeners, up, for our listeners, like what do you want us to do tomorrow morning or now? It's, it's 620 in Philly. We can start. If, if people got off the phone, hopefully finish the end of voices or not even do that. Should they be calling Krasner? Is there a number we can, you know, go on your site? What's the specific ask that you want people to do? Because we, 
Um, I wanted to, in a minute, I want to say a few things about the amazing work you and Momia together have done. But just tell us the, the specific action that you want us to do and how to do it. Delay is justice denied. Mumia needs access to his appeal rights now. Larry Krasner should not delay what is inevitable, that Mumia Abu-Jamal will have a new fair trial and or be released. So Larry would just be playing a delay game and pandering to powerful interests. So he needs to do what the Constitution requires, which is guarantee a defendant a fair trial, emailing his office, Larry Krasner is the DA, people can look it up, phone calling the office is super important, the Twitter campaign has been very valuable, people are signing three or four petitions, Um, there's a Roots Action petition, there's an IAC petition, International Action Center petition, and there's also another local petition that people can actually sign, and people will print them out, and they're hand-delivering that to the DA. They can call, you know, it matters. When a community group in Los Angeles passes a small resolution, and that echoes around. If you got one Wilf chapter, if you got one NAACP passed a resolution that all their chapters endorsed 10 years ago, they need to now take action. So if there's communities of groups that can take an action, it matters. It where where do they people. find the information? So you said they can go to freemumia.org. They can go to um, they Google freemumia and they'll get the four different websites. Okay. They can go to www.prisonradio.org. Are you will see an action component on the right. It'll say take action, and that'll give you some lists of people to contact or a list of things that people can do. Are you also asking for financial support for your work? Absolutely. So Prison Radio lives and breathes on every single $25 gift and $40 gift, and it matters. So anytime that people can, and they can go to www.prisonradio.org and click on the heart, that keeps Mumia's voice alive. We just footed the printing bill for his second volume of his Murder Incorporated series about empire, genocide, and manifest destiny. This is a 500-page book that's at the printer. It costs like $11,000. And so we just emptied whatever we had, and we are printing it. So we proofed it, we've indexed it, we've printed it, and we're distributing it. And so we produced the movie, Long Distance Revolutionary. We are available. We have 47 correspondents that call from prisons all over the country. Mumia is our most regular correspondent, and so he calls twice a week. Keeping that phone line alive for Mumia, Pennsylvania knew how important it was, and they tried three years ago to take it away. They sued us to take away his phone so that he couldn't be part of this conversation. And we fought and won the right to use the phone and to have him be a journalist, a working journalist. When he was dying of hepatitis C and, you know, in chronic had chronic liver disease, we got him treatment. And that campaign that a lot of people in your community helped us with and a lot of people around the world helped with now has gotten treatment ordered for every single hep C chronic case in Pennsylvania prisons. It's like 5,500 people are going to get treated because the class action settled. But it was Mumia's case that led the way. And then Mumia survived. I mean, the amazing thing, if I can say, we're going to segue in a few minutes. Um, 
No, the work you've done, the work Momia has done, I mean, I follow it pretty much every day. And it's both heartbreaking and inspiring and rather amazing. I mean, for our listeners, you're listening to Noel Hanrahan from, among other things, called Prison Radio, which you should listen to uh, and contribute to. And the the will of, first of all, Mamiya Abu-Jamal is a real human being who has chosen to have the will to, to make his life almost he both has his own personal life somehow, but he also has chosen to be a public figure 24-7 so that every single thing he's doing every day has been an incredible struggle. I mean, how you all and he all got out of a death sentence into the general population is almost beyond belief. The fact that this is now happening is almost beyond belief, but it is the kind of miracles that revolutionaries and only revolutionaries seem to be able to carry out. So I want you to know, Noel, I called you immediately. I'm on the prison radio uh, mailing list. I am a, a regular contributor to it. I totally support it. The books that come out are absolutely beautiful. Uh, we helped on Long Distance Revolutionary. So this is magnificent work. And for a lot of the young people listening, um, you're going to have to up your game. Let me tell you, if you grasp what is required to really be a revolutionary and the enormous, like you said, saving his life from hep C, I've been following all those things. So I, I'd like you to end with two things. How is Mamiya doing and how are you doing under all this amazing strain? And then in this particular case, uh, uh, the chance of a major boulder being lifted. You know, I visited Mumia a few days ago, and he has very good energy. He's really excited about his new book coming out. He's working on his Ph.D. He's super engaged. Wow. But he's, his health is hard, you know. He's blind in one eye. You know, I was God. like, he's got glaucoma, and he's going to have cataract surgery, and he was gimpy and limping. And I'm like, yo, what's up? He goes, oh, my feet are a mess. <laughs> he's older like us. Right, right. And he's and I'm like, but well, you got to move to live. And so, um, so he's... He's got challenges, and the prison is com- always uh, tightening the screws on all the prisoners. When they, when prisoners are organized, they tighten screws. So this moment will not get easier. When they are about to lose, they get vicious and mean, and they hold on to their precious That's little exactly privileges. That's exactly right. And so, you know, we are in for it, okay? So we need everybody. We need our backs. And then me... Look, I I am always striving to find ways to do what I can do, and, and so I am halfway through law school. So I'm going to Rutgers, and I showed up for a bunch of prisoners. The, we didn't have enough criminal defense attorneys. There were too many guys dying from Hep C. So I'm like, enough of this. Um, so I'm trying to make sure that we not only broadcast the voices of people inside prison but they would care enough that they get out. Like enough of just hearing their voices. We demand freedom. And it's going to be painful. It's going to cost us. And we need your help because it's, it's pretty dangerous here. Well, you know, Noel, I mean, whether, whatever our religious views are, I do think that you and Mamiya are doing God's work if they're in the form that she exists. And, you know, you say here in the last thing you say, as I sit next to Mamiya, in the visiting room at SCI Mahoney, this is your voice. I know that everything is changing. 
Also note, as we get nearer to freedom, the road becomes a whole lot rougher. Take a minute and give us a hand. Thank you if you have given already this year, and that involves your call to donate to Amplify Prison Organizing. But I would add that um, the work that you have done, the work that Mamiya has done, and, and the sacrifices that he's made throughout his life uh, is one of the true great hopes in my life, one of the great hopes for the Labor Community Strategy Center. It's one of the great hopes for the voices from the front lines. And we are committed to, this is not a story to us or a show. So if it needs every week, if it needs a short, you know, whenever you need us, we're there for you. I think keeping Mumia in people's consciousness, like radio is great because you could have a clip of Mumia, you know, and then just keep him in everyone's heart and mind, like an echo where we know that we're traveling down the road together. That would be great. A minute, 30 seconds, just to like do your bit for Mumia because we're on the road to bringing him home. And so we have to really kick it out. We have to really do it right now. Thanks, Noel. And what we promise to do is, you know, you and I talk all the time. We'll be working on getting the right clips. And Shannon and I will be working to make sure it's a regular part of Voices from the Front Lines. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And everyone out there, it matters. What you do really matters. All right. So listen, you're going to go on one more time for the website, please. www.prisonradio.org. And Google Free Mumia. You'll get a list of like six sites. And communities all over the country have really good action components. Thanks for everything, Noel. You take very good care of yourself, Ricky. Want to go to a short break, and then we're going to come back, and we're going to talk about the United Teachers of Los Angeles. Everybody, welcome back to Voices from the Front Lines, your national movement building show. And when we say national movement building show, I'm in studio with Channing Martinez, our producer and co-host. Um, let's be clear that when we say national, it starts with Los Angeles, that Los Angeles is a world city. Uh, the Montgomery bus boycott was national, and the Selma struggle was national, and History is made in real cities, in real places. Every specific place is national and international if it can successfully get a movement above ground in a country that is trying to keep everything underground in terms of the resistance. 
So now we have the United Teachers of Los Angeles. You've been reading about it, hearing about it. And uh, with us, we have Asenia Chavez. Is that right? How are you doing, Asenia? I'm great, thank you. Yeah, it's Asenia, it's Asenia Chavez. So uh, the question is, uh, I guess the big issue is, even if it should be obvious, what are you people striking for, as they would say? What are the issues here as you understand it? I mean, I'll later on throw a few of the curveballs that the Board of Education is throwing, but why don't you start? You're a teacher yourself. Just tell us a little bit about yourself, Yusinia, and then tell us why the UTLA is facing a strike right now and what do you want to get out of it? Yeah, so my name is Jessenia Chavez. This is my 13th year teaching uh, with the district. And I grew up in L.A. I'm Mexican. I am part of the community. I went through LAUSD schools K-12. And so what we're demanding from the from the district is for them to use the almost $2 million, um, billion, sorry, dollars that they have in reserves for smaller class sizes, more nurses, counselors, librarians, and to fully fund our schools. Um, you know, to end the over-testing of our students, to have more local control and, and more community-based schools that have, that are not just in the name say that, but that actually have stakeholders like parents and students uh, at the table and teachers at the table. And another huge concern for us is addressing the unregulated charter industry that, that's been using a lot of our resources from our public schools. And so that's what we are, those are basically our demands. Well, a couple of things. Let's go one at a time. I mean, so let's talk about the pay raise. The school board says that you've accepted a 6% raise, that you've essentially taken that off the table. Is that accurate? Let's start with that. Is the specific wage proposal still in some way being negotiated? Because I know you have some concerns about it, but my question is, are you still negotiating it? Do you have the right to strike over it? How does that work? I, yes, that's part of our all of our demands that we that we're making is also the six percent. But I think we're willing to forego that if if the district is able to provide better working conditions. Because this morning, you know, I heard one of our other reps was on the radio too, talking about we're looking at the whole child and the way they come into the classroom, and we're also looking at our working conditions because that makes the child's learning conditions better. If we have less students, if we have more outside of the classroom support. Then we have uh, our students have um, more opportunities, and our teachers have more opportunities to, to provide more quality instruction. Well, it says here that your three percent salary. This is from the UTOA and from Alex Caputo Pearl, and saying uh, no progress in bargaining today. So it also says that the LISD proposes raising elementary class size to as high as thirty-nine, and in secondary to as high as forty-six. So it says that. One thing is that your raise, the 3% increase in 2017-18 and 3% in 2018-19, would be contingent on cutting future members' health care, which is the opening step in cutting all employees' coverage. It says there must be no strings attached to the raise that educators have more already than have already more than earned. So are you aware, of course, that there's some ties between the 6% raise they're promising you and some cuts in health care. How does that work? Yes, yes. And we're, you know, we don't want that. We want we want to attract people to, to the profession. We keep hearing about a nationwide teacher shortage. And so one of the things that, you know, that we do have is we have, we have great benefits. And 
if it's going to be contingent upon that for future our future educators, then we, we don't want to accept that. Yeah, because one of the things that um, that's very dangerous, as I understand it, it's saying, is that it would cut future members' health care. So this is what's called a two-tiered labor agreement where you get the people in the union to say, all right, I'm going to keep my medical benefits, but I agree that new people coming into the field are going to have less. And then when they get in, when the new people come in and they get upset about it, management says, what do you want from me? The union did this to you. And then they become anti-union. So have you been having discussions of a two-tiered wage system as a problem? Yes, definitely. We we are not we are not um, going to be accept, accepting of that. We do not want a two-tier system because it, it will break down the union in the long run. Well, tell me a little bit about how does the union work right now? What what's going on? Like you're going back into negotiations tomorrow morning, is that correct? That's correct. Yes. And what's and what are your options in terms of there's something to being discussed about that you may not be able to go out until Monday morning. Do you know any of those? It's not necessarily you do, but do you know any of those details of what, what are you being told and what are the members being told about what to do? So we're being told that there was some kind of legal, uh, the, the district keeps going back and putting um, some, trying to block us from striking. And so one of the things that they had told us was that there was one word that was not in one of the documents that were filed to strike, even though we've been t- telling the district that we're going to strike. And so then if, if that technicality were to be um, accepted, then we wouldn't be able to strike until Monday. And that's what, that's what our membership is being told. Yesterday after school, um, we had a big meeting here on our site, I teach at the Robert F. Kennedy um, complex, and we have five different schools on our site. And so we had a lot of teachers there, and we were all discussing um, the latest and the news because it's happening, you know, uh, minute by minute. And so uh, the way that the union has informed us is they'll email the the chairs, the chapter chairs, and then we'll have meetings. I'm not a chapter chair; I am a, a teacher in the classroom, and but I'll attend the meetings, and then we'll. That's how we find out about what's going on. And so then tomorrow. From what I understand, you know, we're we're sticking to our, our demands. The, the demands of lower class size, of using the, the reserve money, of the ending the over testing. We're, we're we're aiming for all of our demands to be met, and um, that's that's why we're going to go on strike. All of the things that we're asking for. What's it like in terms of the conversations with the teachers? I mean, uh, we say the Robert F. Kennedy. Where is that located? Where is that complex located? Uh, we are in Koreatown on Eighth and Mariposa. Oh yeah, and, of course. Yeah, so we have a huge, a huge site, and there's a lot of teachers here. And the conversations are, you know, they can be a little tense. I think we're very stressed. Nobody wants to go on strike because, you know, we we care about our students, we care about the community, but we feel that this is a personal sacrifice that we have to make in order to to be heard, in order to to for our students to have good schools and for our teachers to have better working conditions. So those conversations, um, you know, we have a lot of questions about logistics, things, things like that. And but I think for the most part, I would say that 98 percent of us, because of the strike vote and also because of what I've observed here on, on our school site, are supportive of the strike and of, of taking a stand. I think we're just tired of of not being heard and of, of being scapegoated and and not treated as professionals. Well, you know, it's funny. uh that historically, you know, there's all when teachers didn't have unions and when uh, 
teachers were more white, uh, there was all this love of teachers, you know what I mean? Uh, the wonderful, every, all the white people would say, oh, I love my teacher, I owe my teacher everything. And then as teachers' unions started getting organized and more black and Latina and other people of color got involved in the teaching profession, it was all of a sudden, well, these are kind of greedy teachers, the system would say, you know, or they started attacks on the integrity of teachers, uh, which has been a 20 or 30-year campaign, just like there's been a 20 or 30-year campaign against all labor unions. So how does it feel to go in and work so hard as a teacher and then listen to the school board talk about you in ways that you think are insulting? It's it's very frustrating. Uh, it's also very disheartening because, you know, I, all the teachers that I know, uh, we work so hard every day to, to provide quality instruction, to build relationships with our families and our students. And it just it feels very like we're we are fighting a huge battle and we don't have all, all the resources. And it seems like we're not being heard. And so I feel like this is our opportunity to be heard and to make a massive impact with the support of of our community, of our of our fellow teachers, our colleagues. And I definitely feel like the district is out of touch or they choose to be out of touch and they choose to to side with privatizers and to side with this Austin Butner and his agenda. And this is really a fight for the future of public education. Um, and I, I believe it's a civil rights fight because this is our opportunity to provide our students with the best futures that they can have. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, uh, Sanya, that, the, as you said, they're consciously not wanting to know. You know, they know. Uh, you know, there's discussion about this surplus. I don't know all the legal details, but they have an enormous surplus. Clearly, if they wanted it for something they wanted it for, they would find a way to be flexible, you know, in our fight with the city council, in our fight with the Los Angeles MTA. Anytime we say we need money for more buses, we need money for low affairs, they say, cannot touch this money, cannot touch this money. And then when they want to, they want to build a rail line. Somebody passes a motion, says, I think we should use some of the reserve. And they find the money. So Yeah, they find the money to give themselves a raise also. Right, <laughs> to find themselves a raise. Um, what, what do you want? Uh, I mean, obviously, our family's involved. The, you know, we have grandchildren in the public school system. We have, uh, we're organizing the strategy centers at three public school, high schools. We're at um, Gustus Hawkins and Ochi O'Donovan and Roosevelt mm -hmm. in East L.A., as well as many others. What are you asking parents and students to do if there is a strike? What's it going to look like? What can we do to help you? And what plans is the union making for this? We have also partnered with local. Uh, every school site is different, but we have also partnered with some local nonprofits like Kiwa, and they are also um, going to be providing, trying to provide spaces for students to go if their parents choose not to. Uh, let them come to school. Uh, we're asking them to join us on the picket line if that's an option for them. Or, um, so, And uh, we're asking for support in that way and also for them to call the superintendent to just call and email and, and tell them, let them know that what we, we're, we're demanding is fully funded school for, for our students. And that's, those are the things that, that we ask for. And that's one of the things that keeps me going every day is, is all of the support that I do receive from my from my students from my parents I just today after school we have a meeting right now going on in our in our NPR 
And a mom was asking me, what can she do to support me? And of course, I'm not going to say, you know, I, I tell her the options and I let her know what, what her options are because every family is different and every family has different needs. And some parents can't afford to keep their kids at home or they don't have a babysitter. But we are um, letting them know. I'm letting them know that whatever they feel and whatever the resources they have available to them, they can use them. You know, maybe you have to send your kids to school, but you can call, you can email. Let's sit together here and let's get on the computer and let's call or let's email. And so we're doing stuff like that. That's, those are the ways that we, that parents and students can support us and the community, which I honestly do feel that I feel a lot of support in that way. Well, the, the Labor Community Strategy Center, we've been working with Esperanza Martinez, one of the lead organizers from the UTOA, and talking to other people and trying to figure out ways. We have a strategy and soul movement center. We're trying to figure out how that can be of more help. We're still talking to our organizers in the three high schools and figuring out we're going to talk to the people at Kiwa now who are our, our allies, Korean immigrant workers organization, immigrant Koreatown immigrant workers organization. Uh, so we want to learn how to do more and we want to do more. Uh, is there a daily, I mean, uh, I also want to thank Marcy Winogrand, who's a friend of the station and a friend of the move in the movement and a friend of UTLA who's been sending me some good stuff. So how do you get the word out more? How, what do you, how do people find out more, like as the strike develops? Is there a daily hotline? Is there a, something the UTLA is putting out that the public can understand better? We have a website. Uh, it's www.wearepublicschools.org. We have a Facebook page. UTLA has a Facebook page um, and a Twitter handle, UTLA Now or an Instagram handle. And those are the ways that we're trying to get information out as quickly as we can. Here at our school site, we're using uh, an app and where we invited all the parents to get on their on the app. I mean, a lot of our parents, even our, our love our Latino parents have WhatsApp and they know how to use it. And so there's a lot of um, ways that we're trying to communicate site-wide, but, but district-wide. We have uh, at UTLA now is uh, Instagram and the Twitter handle and also the Facebook page, and then the www.wearepublicschools.org. Um, we're going to at least give the chance for people to call in at 818-985-5735. Should have done it earlier. We have a few more minutes. We're going to keep talking to Senia and keep, uh, in case you don't call in, but if especially if you want to find ways to help the strike or to ask more about the teacher's campaign, Call us online at 818-985-5735. Or if you are a friend of uh, this struggle and you want to add a few specific facts, um, I mean, I'm very concerned, I mean, just to say about uh, Austin Butner's whether it's a secret plan linked to the uh, leak to the LA Times or just the general Mm -hmm. concept of privatization. I mean, New Orleans... Louisiana, which had one of the great public school unions, not systems, but unions in the country that they had a union that was taking very good care of all the other causes. After Hurricane Katrina, the system moved in and in the middle of that chaos just broke the union and pretty much destroyed the school system now and sold it off into pieces. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't know. I'm looking at the things, some of the things you're fighting for, I'm not sure you'll be able to win in the bargaining process. But certainly if you come out strongly out of this strike, it'll help the fight against 
privatization and this this uh, the so-called charter movement. Um, are you involved in that fight yourself in the fight against charters? Yes, I mean, in the sense that that we try to educate our, our parents about what it means to be in a charter school. We have okay. to do a lot of our own publicity because we don't have those big budgets that some of those schools have. Okay. We, you know, so we do a lot of just talking and building relationships one on one. As far as is in, in the larger picture, I mean, not really. Honestly, I make I have conversations with my colleagues and and I have, I mean, with my family, with friends, because I think there's a lot of confusion about what charter schools are and what it means. Right. Hold, hold on a second, Jenny, because you got two calls coming in. I'm going to listen first to Linda. Can we get Linda from Claremont? Hinda, I'm sorry, Hinda from from Claremont. It's okay. It's okay. Hi. Um, You're on with Senia and with Eric Mann and Jenny Martinez on Voices from the Front Lines. Yes. Uh, one thing I wanted to add, in all UTLA contracts with the district, currently there is a phrase that states that if the administration feels that we go into a budgetary deficit, an emergency situation, that they can raise, automatically raise the classroom size. What's been happening is that every time we get classroom size somewhat reduced, Right. The next thing you know, here come the pink slips, here come, uh, you know, huge class sizes right back up again. We have to change that completely in order to become effective. Otherwise, it's a circle. Thank you so much. That's very helpful. Yeah, and I'm going to get John from Santa Monica. What's the, And then, uh, Sandy, we'll have you respond to both of those. Hey, John, what's happening? Hi, guys. Thanks so much for the program. I'm a long-time veteran teacher in the district 29 years, and I absolutely concur with what one of your guests was saying about this being not just a fight uh, for salary increase and things like that, but this is a fight for public education. Buechner and the people that are supporting him are fighting to privatize this entire district, and that would be an un unbelievably large transfer of public money into private hands. And this cannot be allowed to happen. It's just mm-hmm. it's just wrong. Well, I think that's a very good understanding of privatization. It's taking public money that came out of taxes, that came out of people fighting for public education, and then just coming in through uh, Eli Brode and through Bill Gates and all those people and Warren Buffett and essentially privatizing it, and as I understand it, leaving the rest of the public schools with many of the obligations and debts. So essentially, the public school gets the debts and the uh, pri- the charter schools break off, essentially, the profits and get all the better conditions. Uh, Chani, you have any thoughts you want to Right. I was also reading about that, and I read that there's also a struggle over getting because when you do a co-location, because there's a lot of co-locations between charters and public schools, um, they actually are charged a rental fee, um, but many of the charters are actually not paying that rental fee, and it's something to the tune of $3 million around the district that's actually not getting paid by charters. Um, and they're allowed to just, basically in many ways, that was one of the examples they used, but the point they were saying is that many of the charters are able to basically waive a lot of the restrictions and the actual 
um, you know, rules to actually educating um, high school and you know, elementary youth. Sidney, I want to make sure that you get the last words. We have uh, maybe three minutes left. Uh, tell me any last thoughts about how we can help you. Any last thoughts of if you were talking to one of your close friends who said, hey, I think I support you, but help me understand better what I should do. What would you tell them? I would first, Firstly, I would ask them to go to their local public school and, and get involved at the site. They, you can join us on the picket line. You can bring food donations. We're trying to get our students fed and our parents fed, our community fed, because we know this is the, a place where, where our kids get a meal, and maybe it's the only meal that they get. That's right. So uh, we want to, we're getting donations for food, or we're going to be on the picket line. You call the district, call Austin Butner, blow up their phones and their emails, <laughs> and, uh, and join us on the picket line. And that's, you know, that's basically what I would say. Well, thank you for the great work you do. I mean, that you show up. I was a public school teacher for a while until they fired me for, <laughs> suspended me for uh, being a good teacher, but that's a whole other story. But the main point being that you are doing such amazing work, and our kids, our young people go into school, and we want the strategy center wants no police in the schools. We want no privatization. We want support for the teachers' union. And we'll be on the picket lines with you, and we'll be helping you in every way. And one thing I want to, Channing and I, since we're organized, I want to do some thinking about this food issue, you know, about what the Strategy Center could do more about the fact that students are getting, many of them are getting their lunches and other things uh, because of low income and what's going to happen next. So we have a lot to learn, but I think the best thing is get on the picket line and go on the website and that's how you learn, and we'll learn in the process of the struggle. Thank you so much for being on Voices from the Frontlines, and uh, keep us informed. And if you want to be on next week, somebody, uh, the strike is still going on, we'll still be going on. How about that? Yes, thank you. I really appreciate the support, and thank you so much. Thanks. You take care of yourself. You too. Thank you. So we have about one minute left. And in that last minute, I just wanted to end by saying this, that Voices from the Frontlines is, is trying to be uh, even more and more a help to the actual people on the front lines of the struggle. So there's no way to explain that Momia Abu-Jabal is now in his 60s. He's been, a, as he said, he's now blind in one eye. He is having, he's fought hepatitis C. Noah Hanrahan lives, eats, and breathes helping prisoners. The teachers go to work every day, don't make a lot of money. They face all the social problems. Every single social problem that this capitalist system creates is dumped into the school oh, yeah. in the bodies of these beautiful children who are carrying every single other problem that the system has created. And then the teacher is supposed to miraculously solve that problem and at a time when they need our support, they need much more than a 6% raise over some of that is even retroactive. They need better medical benefits. We need to stop the privatization. Strike is going to be a very important political struggle. And it's going to go back to the basic question of which side are you on. So get in touch with the teachers' union. Get in touch with Mamiya Abu-Jamal on prison radio. And let's hear Nina Simone, and she'll take us out. And so I got to face the final curtain.
could. Friends 